I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. My guest on The Literary Life is Dantiel Moniz. Her new collection of stories, Milk, Blood, Heat, is stunning. My feelings echo those of Danielle Evans, who says, these stories and the characters that drive them are like lightning, spectacular, beautiful, carrying a hint of danger. Dantiel is a brilliant new talent, her writing lush and sharp, her landscape so rich it feels we could step into it, her characters so alive and full of longing that they might step off the page and take the reader with them wherever they're headed next. A stunning and important debut. Dan Thiel, welcome to The Literary Life. As I told you, you know, I devoured each of these stories. Uh, it's just so, so brilliant. I'm, the thing about it that struck me, they struck me viscerally. You know, oftentimes you read a collection and you're reading it kind of intellectually and you're not, you know, your, your mind wanders a little bit. But I was locked in, like, like, like in a film, with each and every one of these stories. You have a, such a distinctive voice, and then you're able, like a good writer does or a good actor does, you're able to transform that voice into your characters. And, um, and then as a writer, you do it sometimes with just an image, just a turn in the plot. You know, like all of a sudden they slip off the raft. That particular scene is like, that actually happened to me and my cousin. That's one of the moments that I drew off oh, it of. Did. And I ended up telling, my mom read the collection and she was like, did, did, did you almost drown when your dad took you to the beach one time? Was that a real thing? I was like, it's a real thing, mom, but it happened so many years ago. She's still mad to have just <laughs> discovered that that had happened. She's so, she's, I, I'm so mad at him every time I talk to her. I was like, mom, I, I mean, we're, I'm alive. So, so reading these and understanding, you know, just how intricate and just how much, you know, you understand people and your sense of empathy, it makes me want to know more about you. 
I think it's something that a lot of some people don't like to hear when writers say is that I've always been a writer. I've written from very young. It's like one of those things. It's like, please stop. You know, you're you. That's a lie. But like, it is true that um, writing is one of the ways in which I can understand what I'm trying to think. What I think. Like, I, I have thoughts. I have intelligence, obviously. But like, a lot of the times, I feel like verbally, I have a I have difficulty getting it across. And it's writing that allows me to see what it is, understand what it is, revise what it is so that it makes the most sense to me. So like, I have diaries from when I was like six, seven, eight, like I, somebody was having like, um, you know, they're putting stuff out on the curve and I found this blank um, journal basically. And I, I started writing poems in it when I was like six, I still have it. It's so embarrassing. Like the first one, it's illustrated too. So I was like trying to do all things, but it's like, Kittens are great. Kittens are nice. I know a kitten who just likes rice. And there's like this picture and the, you know, it says rice on the bowl. It's like a whole thing, but essentially I've always written. Um, and I, even though I'd always written, it's really funny is my, you know, adults in my life would be like, what do you want to do when you got older? And I'd just be like, I don't know, you know, be a movie star. I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. It never really occurred to me until really late, or I guess I'm young. So like late to me is relative, but um, later in my life um, that I read books. I love reading books and someone has to write those books and that person could be me. Like that wasn't somebody, that wasn't something that anybody was preparing me for, but I just always have written. I don't know. It's just. just Tell me about your family. What was your, what was your, what, what was the family milieu like for yeah. you? Yeah. So I lived with my mother. My parents were never married, which I, I guess is like, used to be a weird thing back in, when I was growing up, like in the nineties, like people were like, oh, your parents were never married. I was like, I don't know. It's not weird to me because they never were, you know, like, but my dad was really active in my life. Um, and I had like a whole step family situation over there. And then me and my mom, um, I wonder too, if it has anything to do with both of my grandparents on my father's side were artists. They were both painters. And, um, I, I that skipped me. That gene skipped me. Um, I can't draw at all, but I don't know. So I guess there's always, and my father was always interested in film. So we watched, like he would, take me to go see like really age inappropriate films and my mom would be like she can't see it it's right at R but she'd be like these this is my time on the weekends it's my time you know and we would just go and we would kind of just like talk about the films together I don't know so I've kind of always been immersed in this um system of observation I think I've always been like a really nosy child you know what I mean that was one of the things my mom would always be like oh my god you asked too many questions but I was always looking at things and I was really quiet when I was younger and just like listening to things and listening to adult conversations and that kind of thing. Well, talk about how that plays into your stories because clearly your stories are about cousins and your stories are about step, you know, step brothers and sisters. Your stories are about kind of what we would see as non-traditional families in a yeah. sense. So how did that, talk about how you set some of your stories in that, in that space. I think the thing that really interests me about familial relationships is that, especially when you're a child, you are brought into the world. You didn't ask to be in the world. Um, and a lot of the times you're felt as if the people who are caring for you, it's like their responsibility to do so, but they're letting you know all the time that you kind of owe them a debt um, in some ways. It's like, you know, I put food in your mouth, I put clothes on your back, and then you kind of have to hold that with, well, I didn't ask you to do that. I'm just here and I'm just trying to figure this out. Um, but I think I'm interested in the ways in which we expect things from the people in our lives without realizing their own humanity, right? Like 
I think it's really easy for adults to look at children and say, like, you're a child. It's very simple for you. You don't have any worries. Go away. You know what I mean? Like, you don't know what real life is like, which is not true. It's like you're coming to life for the very first time. That's when you need to be talked to honestly about what's going on in the world. And you, you often don't get that. And then on the flip side of that, I think it's very easy for children not to understand that their parents are real people who it's their first time on the earth in the same ways. And in a lot of the ways, they're also products of, you know, whomever raised them and they're doing the best that they can. So that's, that's one thing I think is very interesting. And, and how do we often kind of conflate love and harm, right? There's, there's ways in which we've been told this is what love is, especially in this very capitalist, um, white supremacist society, right? And then that's not really love. And then there are things that we've told, like, you're being restricted, this is harm, and, and that's actually love. So it's just trying to figure out and navigate, like, what actually is love and, and what, and is all love, even if it is love, if it's hurting you, do you need it? And how do you, like, kind of disconnect from that? Well, that is really what you explore so deftly in all of these stories. I mean, you're ex exploring all of those issues. And what I always love, what I liked about these is that, your stories are not didactic. In other words, you're, you're, you're telling about all of these things, but you're not hitting us over the head to make these points. Uh, but at the same time, as you say, you are dealing with racism, interracial marriage, relationships, love, feminist awakening. Yeah. You have a real, real feel for young women. You know, but the stories about you know, first experiences with sex and love and the confusion and how mothers often, you know, don't really get it and aren't able to really explain what they ought to explain. So going back to that, that young diary, but there's one entry in there and it's, it's like basically, you know, why was I born a human? Why wasn't I born a tiger? Or like, you know, you know, if my mom and dad had been with different people, would I have not existed at all? Or would I have existed as a different version of me? But I didn't write it like as clear as that, but I think that's the question my eight-year-old self was getting at. Like, it wouldn't have been me, but would it have been me in some way? Like, because I'm a part of each of them, or you know what I mean? They're a part of me. And so like, I don't know. So I think I've always been just kind of wondering like, what are we supposed to be doing here? And, and I know that's like, uh, it's a simple question, but it's an existential question, right? I mean, like, who doesn't have that question? Even if it's like, just, what am I doing in this city? What am I doing with this person? Can, like, I, can I give you a piece of information? Yeah. That never leaves you. <laughs> no, I, it, I, I don't think it you know, does. A lot, of, a lot of people don't ask that question. But if you do ask yourself that question, it never leaves. Yeah, it and then it changes, right? Because that's the only constant in our universe is things change. Right. right. So do you have any kind of a, this is a, I just, this just came to me, but do you have any kind of a practice, meditation or anything that helps you open yourself up to these kinds of, you know, this internal life that you clearly have? I'm, I'm so terrible because I'll like start things and then I, if I get off track with them, then I'm somehow like, oh, well, you messed up. Now you just don't do it anymore. Like, I think that's, that's probably some sort of perfectionism that I need to get a handle on at some point in my life. But I think one of the main things that I always do just because this is the way my brain works is that I am constantly analyzing things, um, which can be a very bad thing if you don't get it under control because then you're like overthinking. But I, I literally will look at something or see something that someone does and I'm like, why did they do that? What does that mean? I want to get behind that. Like I want to get behind what you're showing me because I think in this society um, in particular, 
there's so many ways you're not allowed to be. And, and not just in your, you know, gender expression or, you know, those kinds of things, but like, just like if you talk about simple grief, there's a certain way people will allow you to grieve and for a certain time period. And once that's up, or if you, if you step outside of that, then it's like, no, you're, you're, you need to get a handle on it. You need to buck up. You know what I mean? So I think I'm so interested in the ways that people actually are and then what they've conditioned to be. And like, how, how are those two things like always in opposition? Yeah. So these are things that you ponder. These are things yeah. that you think about. And then you're able to translate it into your practice of story writing as well. What was your Jacksonville like? Was it restrictive? I mean, it's restrictive in the way that if you are non-white, non-male growing up is anywhere. Um, but I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's fair. That's really fair. Where yeah. did you go after after high school? Where did you go to school? Um, so I was at Florida State University for my undergrad because that was the only college that was near me that was um, public that offered creative writing as a minor. I went to Douglas Anderson School of the Arts, which is um, my high school for creative writing. But again, it wasn't like they were they weren't they weren't preparing us to be like authors they were just like you wrote this is the curriculum that you did here's your degree that's it do you know what i mean so there was still so much i didn't understand about like how you get from the book to like the book on the shelf you know what i mean right right how did you find fsu how did you find that as a writing program when you were there i had applied and my math sats were so bad that they were like you can't come here and so I, I didn't get in the first time i applied but i got into a college eckerd college which is a private college in um, st petersburg and it was so oh, it's a great yeah it's expensive but a good yeah school. it was no i had i had a whole great first year there it was a whole situation with you know the finances and my grandfather and my dad were like we will pay the first year and then after that you're on your own and i was just like so i went for one year and i was like it's too expensive and i came back to jacksonville did FSCJ, got my, um, the two-year degree, and then I reapplied to FSU, and then they let me in that time. So I was like, all right, um, yeah. Who, who are some of your professors there? Um, FSU, I had um, Elizabeth Stuckey French. Sure. Um, David Kirby, I think. Yeah. And then just, he think, died. He died recently, I think, right? Yeah. Or, yeah, was Virgil Suarez there? Do you remember him at all? Mm-mm. No, he might not have been. I, yeah, I don't think. And if so, I didn't have. Um, yeah. But then there was you one went... teacher I had. I don't remember his name, but all I remember about him is that he did everything he could not to give me an A in that class. And I was just like, no, <laughs> this is what I'm here for. I'm doing the same work as this white dude sitting right next to me. I know, uh, like, I remember I had to write him an email. I was like, mm, what is this? Anyway. Did he ever? Did he ever own up to it? Did it no, ever... I mean, I just remember he would write all my stories like this is not realized or like, I don't know, there was just a way in which I was like, I think you're wrong. I'm just going to keep writing my stories. Well, with I'm writing I, I kind of know he, I, I sort of know he's wrong. So we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to cancel him out. At yeah. that point. So, so as a, as a young writer, as a reader, who are some of your North stars? Uh, who are some of the people that influenced you? I'm not going to lie. I was reading a lot of BC Andrews and like Christopher Pike um which is kind of like you know rl stein like goosebumps yeah, had like yeah you had like a teen version of those books where it was a little yeah. bit more sexy a little bit more yeah so i was reading a lot of that stuff but then i also was reading like i found a copy of like how stella got a groove back and like you know my stepmom's stuff that i wasn't supposed to read but i did um but yeah. 
as far as like why I write the way I write and what I write about, um, why Oleander Janet Fitch? I found yeah. it in my I found it in the high school library when I was fourteen, and I was just like, they don't know this book is here. There's no way they would let us have this book. <laughs> but I didn't know that you could write about mothers in that way because I you know I have everyone has complicated feelings about their parents, right? But like no one like talks about it really, or at least they weren't back then. And so I was just like, oh my god. And so yeah, and then I felt like. I was reading a lot of YA at that time too, and I enjoyed it, but I think there's a way in which you have to kind of protect the protagonist a little bit more in YA. There's stuff that you're not allowed to do or say with the character so it can qualify as YA. And so it was my first time seeing like this character who was my age, who was in all these adult situations and was treated as an, a, a whole full human character and allowed to kind of get into these messy situations that I really liked. And I think that's a thing that I try to replicate in my writing. I try. Like, I love my characters. I feel tender towards them, but I don't want to protect them because that's going to, you know, kind of stop the story. So I kind of, yeah. So that was instrumental for me. I also read somewhere that, that Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet really affected you <laughs> I love uh, that. in a big, yes, big way. Yes, I mean, obviously, Leonardo DiCaprio, that's enough said on that in the <laughs> 90s. But yeah, I mean, that movie was so wild. Like the music, the cinematography, all of that stuff. And my dad had bought it for me and I just like watched it like three times in one day. And he's like, I'm going to take that tape. I was like, you gave me this tape. You know what I mean? Like, this is mine. <laughs> you enjoy films. Does it, does it influence your work in any real yeah. way? Yeah. When you first, when we first came on here and you started talking about like images and like film, I was going to say, I was ex it's, um, funny you bring that up because films are a major influence on me. I think that I'm a really visual thinker. Um, so either most times things come to me as an image or even if they don't, if I'm watching something, I'm always kind of thinking like, how, how would that look in words? And so in one way or another, I'm either translating images to words or vice versa. And I feel like that's pretty much what I'm doing all the time in my work. Um, so many films and as per usual, when I'm asked specifically, my mind goes blank and I'm like, I don't, I don't know, but um, Melancholia was one that was visually very mm. striking for me. And then, yeah, and then like just the, the, oh, the music in that film and then the way they closed stuff on like, really looked at the depression and like turned it into all these different beautiful angles. And I was like, yes, I was like, things that are sad or tragic can also be beautiful. Things that are dark can also be like luminous. And I wanted to, that's what I want to do. I always want to like write into those areas. Well, you know, what's so, what's so interesting to me that you say that is that, you know, your work flies in the face of all of the minimalist kinds of stories that are out there. The minimalist kind of writing that is often taught at MFA programs yes. and other places and your work. I mean, many of your stories, could easily be developed into film. I mean, I hope so. They're, they're, well, well, I'm just saying they're they're short, but they are so packed with images, and the story is so complete that the you know the plot itself is filmic. And I think that's what really struck me about your writing. You know, talk a little bit about the richness of your work, and and as opposed to the minimalism that you were probably subjected to as an MFA student. So I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like I was just having that conversation with somebody about like the types of writing that have often been like most popular to teach, which is like you want to be stark, efficient 
lines. And that's great. And that works for some people and that can lead to a beautiful story as well. But I think that it's, it's in a disservice to people who are trying to do other things. And for me, I feel like I'm trying to create an atmosphere um, as much as just the story on the page. Um, like you were saying, it's easy to, to, to um, engage in stories intellectually, but it was very important to me to also have these stories felt in the body, right? You know, when you, when you feel emotions, it's not just happening in your head, it's happening in your body. And I wanted to do that on the page. I wanted to see if I could transfer that from me to a reader. It's also really interesting too, that when I am writing the things, I'm not feeling it, that I have some distance. Cause I think you do have to have distance from a situation in order to accurately capture it in its fullness. Because if you're in a thing, you're only paying attention to this one limited little sect of what's going on. So I'm not feeling it like when I'm writing it, but like when I, when I go back in to read it, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I got goosebumps on that or, you know, whatever it is. No, but al along those lines, what you do is you create characters. So, so many, yeah. almost all of your stories are written in the first person or from a perspective. Of a close it's, third, yeah. Yeah, or a close third, but it's from a perspective and, and you are, you are getting inside the character. So they're basically character studies in which you're showing and not telling. And also what you just said before brings me to something which is really pretty interesting. I mean, I don't know that I've seen recently a title of a book that is so aligned with what's in the book. So Milk, Blood, Heat. Yeah. I mean, that is, if someone were to ask me, give me three words that describe uh, Dantille's new collection of stories, I would say Milk, Blood, Heat. Yeah. So how did that title come to be? So we have to thank my really good friend, Sarah Fuchs, for this one. She was um, a Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing fellow in my first year at the MFA at Wisconsin. And, you know, she's a really great reader of my work. She's the person who I show my stories to first. Like, she just gets it. And then she, she'll tell me, like, okay, you know you're doing this well. But then she'll also, which is very important in a relationship with the first readers, be like, hey, you're not living up to it right here in these lines. You know, and you don't want to hear that a lot of the times. But it's like... I need to hear that so the work can be where it needs to be. But basically, you know, with story collections, it's so interesting because it's very rare to find a story collection that is named for something outside of the titles that are in the book, like something separate. And so my first idea was, oh, I'm going to name it Sticks and Stones, you know, like Sticks and Stones will break my bones, blah, blah, blah. And then like, I was like, okay, no, I'm not going to do it. I'll just, what about an almanac of bones? Because that's really interesting. It's not a title that anybody else probably has. And she was like, yeah that's cool. She goes, but what about milk, blood, heat? She's like, it's just, it's, it's every element. It's every single element. Right. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I didn't want to hear it, you know? So I went to bed and I woke up still thinking about it. And it was like, well, milk is what nourishes us. Right. Well, especially when we're young, blood is obviously the blood of the body. Heat in the fact that yeah, Florida is a hot state, but also anything living has heat or needs it to live. And so I had to call her and just be like, all right, you got it. You're right. That's correct. And so, yeah, and then after that, that was just... Well, and just, you know, I mean, Milk appears in a lot of your stories yeah. that are turning points. The very first story where they become blood sisters, in, in a sense. And, uh, and certainly the heat of Florida is mm -hmm. all over the place. <laughs> you know, you can't really get away from it. But right. y'all know uh, how it is, yeah. Yeah, we know how it is. Florida, northern Florida, Jacksonville actually becomes 
a setting which is distinctive throughout the story. I don't, I can't think of another, I can't think of another collection or a novel set in Jacksonville that, that does what you do with it. Even from, you know, the story, uh, you know, I'm not very good with remembering names, but the story I'm where the raft, way. the raft was in the, on the beach. Oh yeah. The, the story of Fred, you know, who goes yeah. into that kind of dive, that bar, that's kind of a dive bar that probably we've seen all over Florida Yeah, 100%. To, to even talking about the animals and, I think in one of them, uh, you know, all of that stuff is just, is there, and you've done it so masterfully. You know, I also wanted to ask you about the, something that, that I noticed in your work, which, which was a little bit stunning to me. I mean, it, it, it's stunning maybe because we all do it, and we all ask ourselves, you know, about our own goodness, and are we, you know, we're always kind of reality testing are we doing the right thing? You know, yeah. when it comes, and I think it's in the story Snow, where is it Snow where she looks in the mirror and she wonders yeah. whether she's good or she's not good? Is that where that takes yeah, place? Yeah, it's yeah, she's looking in the mirror and she's like wondering whether she's patient enough to understand the work of love or to do the work of love or loving herself, right? Is that what we're talking about? Right. Talk about goodness in your work. Yeah, so I think I had written a few of these stories. One of them, actually the very first one, which is Outside the Raft, was in 2012 in my undergraduate at FSU. Um, and so, you know, I had that the seed of that story. Obviously, it's much different <laughs> from when I wrote it then. But um, And then around 2015, I was like, I think I want to take this work seriously. I'm working all these double shifts at the restaurant. I I'm exhausted all the time. I don't have time to write. Like, you know what I mean? So then I had talked to my husband about, hey, could we make an MFA work? And, da, da, da. and then I wrote um, a lot of these stories in the MFA, but it took me a while before I realized they were a collection. And at first I just thought, you're writing the same thing over and over. It just felt to me that I was just doing the same thing. I was just like, oh, you're a terrible writer. You have no ideas because it's all the same shit. But in reality, it was like the, this one question that I was turning over from these different angles. And I think it goes back to me is, am I a good person is what I was asking myself. And if we're being really real, because, you know, when you're dealing with yourself, you, you sometimes tend to skew negatively. I was thinking, am I a bad person? But then I had to think about like, how do I, how would I know? What does that mean? And you have to know the opposite judgment if you're, if you're trying to consider one judgment because they're, you know, they're on one side or they're the different sides of the same sphere. They don't mean anything without each other. What does good mean without bad? And then you have to think about, well, if they're judgments, that means they're subjective, which means the definition can change. Who gets to define it? Where's that power flowing from? So I think that is like the central question when I decided, oh, these are a collection and now I'm gonna write into that. And then surprise, the, the question that's happening in the book that surprised me was concerning motherhood, right? I think in every one of these stories, even if it's not dealing with mothers and daughters directly, it's omnipresent. It's um, what, what is this relationship with my mother? Who is she as her own person? Should I be a mother? Or should I be a mother, right? Should I that be was, a mother, right? That and was I, an amazing story. Yeah, I think... What's, what's I, the name of that story? Um, Necessary Bodies. Necessary Bodies, wow. Yeah. Yeah, which I think, so it's, am I a bad person? And then should I have children? Which are like super important questions. And I think that's what I was really kind of 
trying to tackle. And if I don't have children, does that make me a bad person? Exactly, one hundred percent. And I think I think fiction is one of the one of the great things about fiction is it feels like safer territory to ask those questions because this goes back to stigma. If you say to someone, you know, is like, oh, I don't think I'm going to have kids. It's like a whole thing. It's like almost a gas. Like, oh my God, how dare you? Like my mother and I had just gotten to a place where I think she's starting to accept that I might not ever have children in a way where she's just not like, well, it'd be nice to have grandchildren. Oh, you're telling me you don't want to pass along those genes? It's, oh my God, the whole thing of it is like a mess. And I'm just like, please, please lady, you know, like let me live. Yeah, as a father of kids about your age, I don't think I will lay that on you right now. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) but maybe if we see each other in person, I I might give you a few. I mean, I just think like (laughs) the real question is there are other ways there, you know, there's less traditional ways of thinking about um, because motherhood, right? Parenthood is really about creation. Aren't there other yeah. ways than that to create? No, aren't there yeah, other ways course. than that to leave legacy? And I think like I those think, ways are, especially for women, aren't usually offered as like a valid path. And so. I think you're absolutely right. And in many ways, you have given birth to these stories and given people a way of looking at the world differently here. I'm, I'm trying to get you off. I'm getting you off the hook with your mom right now. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, I appreciate, that's a, I appreciate that's, the assist. <laughs> That's, you're getting assist. So uh, just, to, just to swerve around a little yeah. bit. So would you like to write for film or television? Is that something you've thought about? I really do. Um, you know, obviously writing is what, I, what, I, it, what comes natural to me. Um, but like even thinking about the professionalization of that writing was like anxiety making because I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what you know, like even somebody on Twitter was talking about the word penultimate um, the other day. And they were like, why would anybody say second to last when there's this beautiful word that exists? And I was like, I didn't even know that word until I was in my MFA. Like, you know, like just because knowing the terms for things is separate from being able to do the thing. And I think that I would really love, I think I see myself going that direction with film. I just think my mind works that way. Um, I'm already thinking about, even in my stories, I'm thinking about what music would this scene have? And you know, that kind of a deal or like, what are the angles I would use? And I don't know anything about filmmaking. I feel like it's one of those things that feels very expensive and very complicated. And so I think what's going to happen is very, a slow, like inching towards like figuring out how all of that works. But that's what well, I like. One of the, the fans of your books, um, the author of Friday Black, right? Oh, Nana. Nana, yeah. Nana has said, the stories in this book are rigorous and complex lush and surprising. They are visceral, full of the intimate awe of existing in flesh. And I know that he's taken his first collection of stories and is developing those cinematically yeah. in some particular way. Good for him. Um, and it's something that I could see happening with you too. I mean, you have such a strong, you know, interesting voice to be able to explore these. Which leads me to the next question. And that is why the short story and maybe not even developing some of these or something different into a novel? Or are you doing that and I just don't know about it? Yeah, so the second, the, form, uh, the latter on that one. I, um, it's actually really funny. So I finished this book, it's been published. So that's like, yay, I did something. And I know I can do it. Even though each time you go into a new project, it's you having to figure out how to do it all over again. But um, the reason why I actually went 
into my MFA is because I had written this novel when I was 12 <laughs> and I have it. It's over there in the drawer. It's like so embarrassing. I, um, I have it, but I found it in 2010 when I was like, you know, moving my stuff to go to college. And I was like, oh, this is horrible. But the ideas are not bad. I'm still interested in whatever I was trying to do in this story. And so then I started trying to write it. Um, and I was getting stuck. Like I would write to 10,000 words and then put it away for a year. And then I would get, you know, the next time I would get to 20,000 and put it away. And so finally I did the MFA. Um, I was able to finish a first draft of the novel there. I had no interest in workshopping the novel. I just didn't at all. So I was doing the stories at the same time for workshop as I was doing the novel, which I would do with my thesis. So basically I was writing the stories and this novel at the same time. And then I got to a point where I had to revise the novel, which is a whole beast. I don't understand how it's done. So that's the whole you know, problem of trying to write it. But um, I got to this point with my agent where I was like, well, I'm, I'm really stuck on this novel, but I already have like seven or eight stories and like five of them are published. Like, could we do the short story collection? And you know, there's that thing in this industry where it's like, oh, if you're not doing a novel, you can't do it. Or like, you need to wait until you have, you know, a novel to use as a vehicle for the short stories. And I didn't want that. Um, and I didn't know if that was allowed. And she was like, honestly, if you're feeling pulled towards the stories right now, just do it. And so then I kind of put the novel on a shelf and started writing the short form, which comes a little bit more naturally to me. I think only because I'm the type of writer who builds sentence by sentence, like this, the, the sentences have to be right. They have to sound right. They have to be, you know, the way that I want them to be. And it's easy to do that with a short story, right? You can build sentence by sentence. Um, you can't really do that with a novel. And so I think that's where my struggle is. But yeah, so I'm working on a novel. We'll see what, <laughs> we'll see what happens. But are you still writing stories at the same time, pretty much? Um, no, now, now that the stories have, honestly, the revision and publication and promotion of these stories yeah, have like taken up all the space like it really does it takes up no one tells you that like it takes up all the time but now that this is kind of in the world and i can kind of like sit back a little bit more i'm going to get back into the novel we'll see yeah, nobody tells you that and they don't tell you you need reading glasses when you're in your 40s that's the other <laughs> thing that nobody tells you I, I needed reading glasses when i was six because i would read in the dark all the time you know like my mom would be like, okay, put the book away. We're going to, you know, drive home. And I would just be in the dark, like, and so, and I used to sit close to the TV, so. In, the, in your collection, where did Fred come from? Where did yeah. the, the only point of view from a man's point of view come from? Yeah, I think um, first, it is the only story that's from the male perspective, but that I still see that story as being about the women in Fred's life, right? Because even though it's Fred, about his wife, and yeah, the, exactly, and, the and, and Hilda, and exactly, he's feeling like he has all this power, but really it's controlled by these two women in his life and what he thinks and what they think of him. So really, the power is on them. But so Fred, Fred is really interesting, and I actually debated about whether I whether that story belonged in the collection only because I didn't want people to be like, oh, that's the male narrative. So that's the one that's at the center. Like I even was like, when we order this, I don't want it to be at the center of the book. I don't want people to be like, it's about the male. But uh, I, Fred is actually based on, so before I started uh, writing and teaching and all of that stuff, I only ever worked in like retail or like restaurants. I was a bartender for like, that's how I supported myself. And I started bartending when I was 18, because you're allowed to be 18 and bartend in Florida. And, you know, so there was this weird dynamic of here's this 18-year-old 
girl really and you know all these much older patrons and you know you'd have this weird power dynamic because some of them would be like you're not even old enough to drink how are you going to card me and I'm like well you can leave my bar you know what I mean it's like this whole situation so but um he's based on a regular that I used to have Mm. who kind of fetishized me and kind of like it was this weird relationship where I didn't owe him anything outside of fixing him his drinks while we were in the bar, but it became kind of convoluted and complicated because I felt as if I did. And it took me a really long time to untangle like what he wanted from me versus like what I was supposed to be giving and all of this stuff. And so I kind of just wondered, I started wondering like, who is this person outside of these like couple hours that I know him every week? Like I, I started wanting to know kind of what his life was like. So basically that story was like an empathy project for me because I was like, this man is like, so complicated and I have like skeevy feelings about it, but also I feel bad for him. And I just wanted to know like, where was the human in him that I wasn't able to see? Like what versus what he brought to me when we were at the bar, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And, And the character of his wife is just stunning. I mean, what you did with her and the empathy that you brought to that story as well it was quite amazing. The other story that that turned and it took an unexpected turn a bit was the story uh, where you, uh, where the character and his brother and her brother go with the ashes. Oh, thicker than water, yeah. Oh boy, that that's something. And then and then you, re- I, I don't want to do a spoiler, you yeah. know, spoil anything, but there's a very interesting turn when you discover the father both the father's relationship with the son and the father's relationship with the daughter, which, you know, really just turns the whole thing. But I love the idea of the travel story with the urn, you know, of the father in order to scatter the ashes. It's like the father's always present, even when he's not, which is, yeah, the point. Well, and and, which is the case. I mean, when your parent, when your parent leaves this earth, they're always present within you. Or when anybody leaves, they're yeah. present within you. Even if they leave your life, they're present within you somewhere, um, I think. You know, I wonder, would you like to read, could you read a little something maybe from the book? We would a love that. A little something. I'm going to read just this small section from the title story, Milk Blood Heat, um, which if you haven't read it yet, it's basically two teenage best friends. Um, and they're going into the woods in this section. The girls continue on without their shoes, fleeing into the shade of the small wood behind the pond, bare feet pressing down into cool, loose dirt. They don't cry out when the sharp points of broken twigs or acorn tops drive into the soft flesh of their insteps. They grit their teeth and keep moving. They swallow pain. In a clearing where the sun breaks through, they find a dead cardinal, red and perfect, lying on its back with its legs curled in the air like small, delicate rooks. Don't touch it, Kira says. Leaning in so close, the tip of a bent feather almost brushes her nose. Bird flu. But they both get close like that, hunkering down, drinking death in. Ava wants to trace her finger along the soft black feather surrounding the beak. She is jealous of its open, hollow eye, the utter stillness of its body, even its rank, sweet smell. She lies down beside it, her head at its head, and stares up into the jagged patch of sky. She imagines she's at peace. Kira lies down too, and they stay like that until the sun sinks behind the pines, casting the world in cool gold and nightshade green. When Ava's mother picks her up that night, her eyes immediately scan her daughter, looking for unplatted hair, for marks, for evidence of her wild ways. She pauses at Ava's shoes. 
When she speaks, her voice, her voice is saccharine, all her words crisp, enunciated carefully, as if speaking a language she knows but wishes she didn't have to. It's the voice she uses for her answering machine, for meeting strangers in professional situations, the one she switches on for talking to her daughter's friend's white mother. Thanks for watching her, she says, smiling, but her eyes are unlit coals. Kira's mother is a fluttering, airy sensation at the doorway, something fleeting and cool against Ava's cheek. Oh, we love having Ava, she says, and her cotton candy voice seems like the real thing, so earnest it can melt. Why are your sneakers so dirty, Ava's mother demands, as soon as the door is shut and they are walking to the car. Why every time I come get you from this girl's house, you're always a mess. Both her parents live here and they can't watch y'all. And Ava says nothing because words never mean what she wants them to. Dantiel, thank you for being here. The book is uh, Milk, Blood, Heat, a collection of stories, a collection of stories that you must go out and make sure that you get immediately. It is uh, one of the best collections I've read. So thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much. I appreciate it.